Amen. Thank you, Will. Now, we like to have Will do announcements because it just sounds smarter than us. So, appreciate it, brother. Yeah. Hey, welcome. Welcome to Redemption Parker. If you're visiting, we're glad you're here for the worship of God. We are working our way through the Gospel of Luke, so you can begin to turn if you have a Bible or a smartphone or something to the Gospel of Luke, love to have your eyes on the text. Luke chapter 7 is where we're going to be at this morning. Let's jump back into that. Well, Mark Twain once said, faith, faith is believing in something you know ain't true. Oh, thank you. It's kind of, it's kind of a funny thing, but uh, you'll track with me and say, well, um, Frederick Nietzsche kind of echoing Twain. He said this, faith is not wanting to know what is true. More recently, Richard Dawkins, evolutionary biologist and new atheist, he said this, faith is the great cop-out, the great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. Well, I would argue a couple things here. First of all, I would argue that to be human is to walk in faith. Even Dawkins and Nietzsche and Twain themselves, uh, they, they live their life, much of their life in, in a faith paradigm. It just is a different paradigm. And in spite of what maybe these men want, uh, by all accounts across the globe in different ways, faith is not shrinking in the world, but it is actually growing. Different religious movements and otherwise, faith is a big deal. And everyone has faith in someone or something, something that they can't prove, and yet it, they operate out of this paradigm. And of course, you're here uh, in a uh, faith service. Faith is huge for us as Christians, but, but, but maybe not in the way that the world would, would say it is. There's a lot of misnomers about what faith is and isn't. We, we as Christians don't believe in faith in faith. You just got to have faith, the faith, the faith, as George Michael saying, 1987. Like we don't believe in faith for faith's sake. No, no. The Christian worldview is, is very much into faith, but it's, it's faith pointed in a particular direction or more specifically pointed at a particular person. It's faith based on uh, history, based on the promise of, of God, the history of God with God's people. It is not a blind faith. In fact, if you're a, not a believer, or maybe you have been a believer, and you've had questions and doubts and struggles, and, and you've brought that to other believers, and they've said to you, oh, you just got to have faith. Well, then I just want to apologize on behalf of them. That's not what the Bible would say. That doesn't honor the God and the promises of the Bible. We, we don't believe in faith for faith's sake. We, we believe in faith for a reason. Now, now, this is what we believe as Christians, and yet survey after survey shows even Christians, especially in America, in the West today, when, when it gets down to what they actually believe, doesn't actually echo what the Bible says that we should believe, what, what the catechism says we believe. Even though faith is everywhere and growing, we might hear, oh, that person is a person of faith. We might think, oh, they, they're an adherent to one of the world religions, or, or that person might Say I'm I'm religious I'm I'm spiritual but not religious and we know what that means in our culture in our postmodern day that that means someone who has rejected outside influence or or at least pick and choose what outside influence they want to shape their faith but really uh, they don't want anything like a catechism to shape them they want to in their own thoughts and in their own thinking uh, develop a, a a system of belief of God or goddesses or or whatever it may be and so they'll say things like well my God would never 
Or Jesus to me is like this. And in our culture, you're supposed to just kind of, you're expected at least to kind of smile and nod along. Oh, that's, that's good for you. But again, that's not what the Bible would say is faith at all. But even in the church, as I said, in the church, uh, when we get down to it, a lot of what has been taught about faith is not the faith of the Bible. Uh, there was a sociologist not, uh, not too long ago named Christian Smith who did a study of religious views of, of people who had grown up in church, gone through youth group, gone through college, and, and they decided to, to kind of uh, ask them questions about what they actually believe. And what came forth of that was not a biblical faith, not a faith that we're going to look at today, but what he termed this phrase, moral therapeutic deism. For, for most people that call themselves Christians in the West, that they don't have a biblical faith. They believe that God wants you basically to be moral, that uh, he's kind of a therapist in the sky, just kind of care for you when you need him, but not really be there when you don't. He's deistic, meaning he doesn't really involve himself in the daily life of people. This is not the faith of the Bible at all. And we're going to turn our attention now to Luke 7, where, where Luke is, is going to begin. He's done this already to, to a degree in Luke chapter 5. But in the next couple of chapters, Luke is going to bring out this jewel of biblical faith. And he's going to have us look at the, the many sides of the jewel in, in different scenes and in different ways to, to kind of take in what does it look like when the Bible says we must have faith. I mean, Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. So it's a pretty big deal. Um, in Hebrews chapter 1, or rather chapter 11, verse 1, he gives us a definition for, for what faith is. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Faith is confidence in what we hope for. That, that means that there is, there is reason to believe. There, there's confidence to believe. There's, there's a hope that we are, are leaning into the future about based on what God has done and, and is doing in our lives. This is what faith looks like. Or Augustine, the great church father, put it this way. Faith is to believe what you do not see. The reward of faith is to see what you believe. This is what we have confidence in. And so, again, Luke is going to put this jewel out in front of us and say, this is what faith looks like. Now, that's going to encourage us and show us how to walk in faith, but, it's, but, but there's going to be times where it's going to hurt a little bit. And, and I just want to say that because as we look at the jewel of faith over the next few chapters in, in Luke, and we compare it to our faith, because we're all in pro process and we're not there yet, there are going to be things where it doesn't quite match up. And when that happens, it's the Holy Spirit's grace to us to show us, hey, um, this, you're not really walking in faith in this area. You, you've surrendered these things of your life, but, but what about these things in your life? And when that happens, our tendency is, is to say, no, 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 God, you can have this part of my life, but, uh, but this is off limits to you. And, and the Spirit's going to press in on that. But he's pressing in for your joy. For God's glory and your joy. You, you need to keep that in mind. When, when, when these passages hit us, and they will, it's for our joy in Christ. It's for our eternal joy. So with that said, we're in Luke chapter 7 this morning. And Luke has this kind of rhetorical device that he uses. It's, I would call it the, the, the surprise device. 
There's going to be stories and people that start to come into the story of, uh, of Jesus. And Jesus is going to say things and do things that you do not expect. We have a certain picture of how we think Jesus should act and respond and what he should do. And time and time again in Luke's gospel, he doesn't do that. And when, when he doesn't do that, when he says something that maybe is even offensive, when it doesn't make sense, when, it, when someone is doing something that doesn't make sense, that's our clue from Luke to slow down, to stop and ask some questions. It's, it's Luke saying, I've got something here for you, but you're going to have to dig deep in it, right? Uh, Luther said that he, uh, to understand the gospel, he took the apostle Paul and he beat him until he understood it. Now that's a way to study the Bible. We need to take Luke and beat him until we understand it. It's not easy, but it's for our, our good and for God's glory. So with that, let's jump into our text this morning. There's going to be five, at least five surprising things. And they're going to start to get more and more surprising. If we slow down and see the surprise, this should be the Holy Spirit saying, listen closely, have ears to hear. I'm about to do something. So Luke 7 verse 1 says, when Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. Capernaum is this village on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. It is Jesus' home base for his ministry for three years. It's this crossroads of commerce and market and taxes are, are taking place there. Uh, so, so it's kind of a big deal at that time. Verse 2, they're a centurion. Let's just pause right there. What do we know about centurions? Centurions are the public face of Roman oppression. They're the, head, they're the tip of the spear of Rome keeping control on the far reaches of the empire. They are leaders, they're Roman officers that have a hundred soldiers in their garrison underneath them. Uh, they are hated and for good reason. They were known as being brutal, uh, just horrific. They, they would, would, I mean, it was a dangerous position for them as well. So they often embraced the brutality of it. And for 70 years now at this point in the story, for 70 years, Rome has had an occupying force in Israel. These pig-eating Roman uh, false god-worshipping Gentiles are, are in the land and they're polluting the land. And they were hated and despised. And so onto the scene comes a centurion. But then we see the first surprise. There a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. So, so this is not a surprise that he has a servant, rather a slave. All the centurions were, were given slaves, but, but, but they were brutal people. They, they saw their slaves merely as property, not as people. And so all of a sudden, this centurion is different. He, he has a slave, but this slave is dear to him. He loves this guy. He has compassion for this guy. He sees his, his, his friend, that is his servant, dying of maybe dysentery or, or malaria, which would have been common in that time. He's about to die. It's evident. So the first surprise is we, we have a centurion enter the scene, and it's a centurion with heart. What's going on with that? We're supposed to hate these guys. And then it rolls out even further. The centurion heard of Jesus, which is not a surprise. This is Jesus's home base. Large crowds have come into the town. He, he's seen Jesus work or maybe even teach. But the centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. 
When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. This man deserves to have you do this. Again, slow down. What? This centurion has apparently uh, some friendship with Jews, not just any Jews, the leadership. This tells me that the centurion has been there for years, maybe decades he's been in this area. I mean, because the, the Jewish people were taught, don't even talk to them. Don't look to them. Uh, d- do not have any interaction with the centurions whatsoever. They're detestable. You, you'll be unclean. But, but all of a sudden, this centurion, he calls the Jewish leaders to him, and they come, and he says, hey, my servant's dying. Would you mind going on my behalf and going to Jesus? And they go. They don't just go. It says they pleaded earnestly with Jesus and they said this, this man deserves to have you do this. This is incredible. Like nowhere else in the scriptures are you going to have uh, 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 Jewish leaders advocate on behalf with such earnestness and passion that this centurion is loved by the Jews around there. That's surprising. What's up with this guy? Well, it continues. They give a reason. They say, this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation. This is crazy. This Roman Gentile centurion loves the Jewish people. He's what would uh, be termed in the first century a God-fearer. So, so when Gentiles in the first century uh, had, uh, whether through the spirit or just their own reasoning, they had looked at their life and their own culture and their own gods, and they found it wanting, and they, and they got close to the Jewish people and, and maybe read the Jewish scriptures, the, the Septuagint, the Old Testament in Greek, and maybe uh, kind of learn more and more about their prayer life and their Sabbath and their, their flourishing and all that God had for them and all that God has done, that they're drawn to this. They become what, what are called God-fearers. Uh, Acts chapter 16, we see Lydia in the book of Acts. She's a God-fearer. She's like, there's something here. He's probably become a God-fearer. And so the Jewish leader says, he loves our nation. That's crazy. But, but he doesn't just love our nation in, in word and in thought. They give more evidence and has built our synagogue. This is unbelievable. A centurion has built the synagogue. A centurion has given this transformational gift so that the people of God could come and gather and pray and study the word and worship. And they have the centurion to credit for this. This is crazy, right? Well, here's what's also crazy as I thought about this. So last summer, we sent Pastor Rick and and Clayton to to kind of go... um, prepare the way for us to take teams to Israel. Uh, and then a war broke out, so that's on delay. But, but they went to Capernaum. You, you can go to this place. Now, the, the, the synagogue there is at the same place uh, of where uh, this synagogue was. Uh, the synagogue currently there uh, that has white marble walls is from the 4th century. But, but if you go into there, the, the foundation is, is black basalt. It's from the 1st century. It's from this dude. Like our people have been in the place where this dude's transformational gift gift has still uh, has an effect in the world today. That's incredible, right? I mean, that's a sermon for another time. But imagine if 2,000 years from now, people would come to Parker, Colorado and be like, hey, there was a group of Christ followers here 2,000 years ago, and they invested in such a way that we can still see their work. That's, again, that's a different sermon, but 
This is what this guy has done. He loves our nation, has built our synagogue. That's the third surprise. Let's keep going. So Jesus went with them. Jesus hears them. They're earnestly pleading. He's like, okay, let's go. Let, I, I can do that. Let's, let's do that for this guy. By the way, this is the first time in the book of Luke uh, where, where Gentiles are kind of brought into the mercy and the grace of God. And so this is a big deal. We're going to see this roll out more in the book of Acts, but this is a big deal. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to tell him something. So something has happened here. From between the time that that, uh, he, he sends out the Jewish leaders to go appeal to Jesus, and they go and they plead earnestly and they start to come back, something is, is starting to click in his mind. The Holy Spirit is opening his eyes. And in the opening of his eyes, he, he, he starts to connect some dots and he, and he gathers his friends. Maybe his friends are there mourning with him and, and waiting for this guy. Is this going to be the last breath this guy takes? And he says, hey, hey, hey friends, will you go to Jesus and, and tell, take a second message to him? They're like, yeah, we can do that. What do you want us to say? Here's what I want you to tell them. Tell him. And so they go, and, and Jesus is almost there, but, but he's not quite at the house. And, and they, they run into Jesus, and they say, well, we, have, well, we have a message to you from our master. And this is a surprising message. He says, um, Lord, so he addressed this, this Gentile centurion, addresses Jesus as Lord, so that's surprising. Lord, don't trouble yourself. For I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. Something has shifted in his mind. Remember the, the argument of the Jewish leaders. This man deserves for you to do this. This man is worthy for you to do this. And something has clicked in his mind. No, I don't deserve this. I am not worthy of this. And it's something from his life that the Spirit has used to open his eyes to see something of Jesus that that other people may have seen but have not done anything with it. Here's what he says. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. He says, I tell this one, go, and he goes. And that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. there's something connecting the dots in his mind of the authority of Jesus. He says, I have authority. I have authority. My words make the disordered world of of the Roman Empire come into order. But this guy, this guy, he's got far more authority. His words bring the disordered world of sin and sickness, suffering and death into order. Who am I? Who am I to to even appeal to this? I I am not worthy of this. He he has this kind of awakening moment. He has this amazing profession of faith, which brings us to the last surprise. This is when Jesus heard this, what the friends had just relayed to him. It says he was amazed at him. That word amazed is used often in the gospels, 38 times to be correct? 35 of those times, it's the people are amazed at something Jesus has, has done or said. Two times, 
It's Jesus amazed at this guy. So here in Luke 7 and then in Matthew, the parallel story of this story, Jesus is amazed at this guy's faith. Why is Jesus amazed? Think about it. If you, um, if you are the create, creator of the cosmos and you know every, every molecule in the universe and you've directed the course of all of history, not just human history, I would imagine it would take a lot to amaze you. But Jesus is amazed. He's amazed. Why is he amazed at this point? Well, because he's like, finally, finally, someone gets it. I've left my throne in glory in heaven, came and took on flesh to live a life that no one else could live, a life of perfect obedience to the Father. And I've gone public with my ministry. And John the Baptist has said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And the people have heard me teach. And they've said, you teach as one who has authority, not like our teachers. And they've seen me uh, cast out demons and they've seen me heal people. Uh, uh, but, but you know what the, even though they, they see that authority, you know what the the main response has been, meh, meh. Oh yeah, you have authority, but meh. What's the big deal? And finally, someone says, you have authority and I'm going to line my life up with that authority. And Jesus says, he gets it. He's amazed. I said there, there was one other, one other time the word amazed is used. It's in Mark chapter 6. Jesus goes to his hometown and he's teaching them. And it says he couldn't perform any miracles there because of their lack of faith. And it says Jesus was amazed at their lack of faith. You, you probably have amazing faith to Jesus. The question is, is it good or is it bad? Then Jesus says something that maybe is the most surprising of all this. I guess this is the sixth surprise. It says he was amazed and turning to the crowd, following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. This is both a compliment to this centurion and a slap in the face to the Jewish people. Because they have the prophets, they have the law, they have the history, they have all the evidence of, of God's grace. They have all the miracles and, and they say, well, we're not going to change our lives based on what you say. And he's amazed. Well, what was it about this centurion's faith that actually amazed him? Maybe you've already picked up on it. Let's, let's look at the text one more time. Remember when he sends out the Jewish uh, leadership what do they say? They say, this man deserves for you to do this because, and they give evidence, he loves our nation, has built our synagogue. So, so it, it isn't that the, the Jewish leaders don't have faith. They just don't have faith in Jesus. They have faith that the world's kind of faith. They have the faith that we default to. They have faith in their own merits, or in this case, the merit of the centurion. This is how the world responds. This is how our hearts drift to all the time. Well, I do this, this, and this, and then God gives me this. And they're like, hey, we've got good reason for you to do this. We're pleading with you. He deserves this. He loves us. He built our synagogue. So it's based on merit. And that's how they've lived their whole life. They have incredible faith. It's just in themselves and their moral and, and religious performance. That's the paradigm of the world. That's the paradigm of religion. But, but here, 
there's a shift in the paradigm in the centurion. Did you see what the shift was? He says, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. I am not worthy. Now, here's what Pastor Tim Keller helped me understand about this passage. This is the key. If he would have just stopped right there, he'd still be only operating under the old system, the the system of merit. Hey, I'm not worthy. I don't deserve this. Thanks for even considering it. I'm off. But that's not what he says. There's a major shift. In fact, for anyone to have biblical faith, they have to make this shift from my own performance, my own religious, uh, and my, my own morality to this shift. It's a shift from merit to mercy. He says, I'm not worthy. I don't deserve this. But you say the word. I, I, I can only appeal to your mercy. He gets it. This is what shocks Jesus. Mercy. He understands it. He arranges his life insofar as he can around the mercy of God. So what does Jesus want to teach us here about true faith? I have three things, three things, three applications that I think we can pull from this passage. First of all, often crises is a catalyst for our faith. It's those moments where the doctor's report comes in, uh, a friend gets sick, someone dies, things go bad financially, a relationship is in tension, world is falling apart. It's often in the crisis moment that God comes and meets us most intimately. And, and that's not a bad thing. Maybe you're in that season right now. Maybe you've, you, you're struggling and, and you're, there's just a point of pain. And, and I want to encourage you this morning. God wants to meet you in that place. God does some of his best work in that place. If we were to share our own stories and our faith journey, many of us would, would point to the most painful times of our lives where God got our attention. That's a good thing. I, I will say this that sometimes the crisis comes and we turn to God, then the crisis has gone away, the relationship is mended, the, the, the healing takes place, and then we go back on our own way. Don't let that happen. This happens in the gospel. Jesus heals 10 lepers. One of them comes back. It's like, I'm forever in debt to you. Don't let the crises pass and then faith to fade away. C.S. Lewis put it this way, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So often crisis is a catalyst of faith. This is, we see this in the centurion. It wasn't until his, his beloved servant is dying that he reaches out to Jesus. And that was enough. That was enough to turn to Jesus. Number two, our faith can be a catalyst for others. I would say our faith is always a catalyst for others. As others see us walk in faith, it encourages other people's faith. That's why we need each other. We need to hear each other's stories. We need to see each other go through the ups and the downs so that we can see what faith looks like. So, well, where where do you get that, Mark? Well, it's actually in a verse we haven't covered yet. The next verse, 10. It says, the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. That's, Luke is intentionally understating what's happened here. Because his point is to focus on the uh, amazing faith of the centurion. But, but, but imagine if you're one of those friends. You thought 
we'll never see this guy alive again if we, if we step out of this door. But okay, if you want us to go, we'll, we'll go. And, and you go and you, you, you relay the message. But then you come back and, and there's not a, a funeral going on. There's a party going on. And there's food and there's dancing. And this guy's more alive than he's ever been. Well, imagine what that would do to you. That's the fruit of this centurion's faith. I mean, I imagine you tell that story the rest of your life. And I'm speculating here, but I imagine some of us are, are going to get into eternity. We're going to run into some of these guys. It is eternity after all. And we'll say, hey, tell us your story. And they'll be like, it was crazy. Like my, my friend, his servant was dying. He sent us out. We told these things to Jesus. We came back. Jesus had healed this guy from a distance. And, and we couldn't help but to put our faith in Jesus. Our faith is often a catalyst for the faith of others. Now, I said this last week, but but the point bears repeating. Parents, your faith is the number one catalyst in the faith of your children. But but I'll I'll even go a little bit further because study after study after study shows, and and, and I'll send you the articles and links, there is an outsized influence in the faith of fathers over their families. And this is not to knock the faithful moms out there. In fact, they're all like shaking their head. That's right. We know. Like, it's just how God has designed, designed the good authority of the father to, to come in and, and for children to see what, what, what not, not just what you say, but how you live, because more is caught than taught. And, and so don't punt that responsibility We'll stand before the eternal God and give an account for that. I hope it's just an encouragement for you. Your faith is a catalyst for the faith of the next generation, right? Now, I also get that that, that authority, even saying the word authority, might be kind of a, a trigger word in our culture because in our world, a bad authority does tremendous damage. Bad authority of parents, bad authority gone wrong with uh, uh, relatives or teachers or, or the justice system or politicians or governments. When, when people who are given authority by God is misuses, it does a tremendous amount of damage in our lives. But when authority is exercised under the, the good authority of Jesus, it brings flourishing and health and renewal to our land. So we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. We walk in the good authority under the authority of Jesus. This is what the centurion has done. I have authority, but your authority is ultimate authority. I'm going to arrange my life behind that, which brings us to the last point. Simply take what you know about Jesus and respond accordingly. Take what you know about Jesus and respond accordingly. It wasn't the perfection of the centurion's faith that amazed Jesus. It was the direction of his faith. It's not the strength of our faith. It's the object of our faith. Well, we can have really strong faith in weak objects and that will not deliver us at all. Or you can have that teeny tiny mustard seed faith in Jesus and see that he is faithful to deliver. All this guy knew was Jesus had good authority and he responded accordingly. Most of us in this room know so much more about Jesus than this centurion. The question is, do we respond accordingly? When the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and he shines his white light of holiness in our life and says, that's good that you're walking and trusting Jesus in this area, but I am Lord of all. And so what about this area? Are there parts? Well, 
That's a rhetorical question. This is true for all of us. There are parts in our lives where we've held on to and we say, God, you can have that, but this is too precious to me. I'm not willing to give this up. And the Holy Spirit says, mm, yeah, but you, you need to be. And maybe it's the same thing. Maybe it's different for us. Maybe it's your, your sexuality. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's your desire for control. Maybe it's your financial and finances and possessions. There's something in your life where you're like, Jesus is Lord, but, but not Lord of all. And when the Holy Spirit says, no, no, I want you to trust me in this area. And when we do step in faith in that area, what happens is our faith grows. Our enjoyment of Jesus grows. Uh, we, we, we find that we are more alive than ever. That's an amazing thing. But the opposite is also true. When the Holy Spirit says, what about this area? And you say, nope, that's off limits. What you're doing there is you're turning off the spigot of God's grace in your life. You're quenching the spirit and you're wondering, why don't I feel anything? I, I go to church, I, I go to worship, but I don't feel what I once felt. Well, why is that? Because you've chosen to shrink your faith. And so let me just kind of conclude our time with an encouragement. Uh, we would be remiss not to just kind of take stock of what the Spirit is saying to each of us. So I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up. Uh, but instead of just closing in prayer, I want you to do some work between you and the Spirit of God this morning. I want you to look at the jewel of faith that you saw this morning and then just ask the Holy Spirit, is there an area of my life? Maybe you are very much aware of that area right now, or maybe uh, the Spirit of God would, would speak to you just as the Spirit does individually in this place and, and show you. I want you to walk in faith. I want you to take what you know of me and respond accordingly. And then I'll close us in prayer and we'll, we'll come to this table once again. So let me just uh, lead us in that time. Yeah. Mm. Lord, I thank you that you are for us and not against us. Lord, you want us to flourish in your good world. I thank you for the paradigm of mercy over merit. Lord, we appeal to your mercy now for, Holy, for you, Holy Spirit, to speak into our lives, to show us, Lord, where we have not walked in step with the Spirit. Lord, I just pray that your grace would flood into people's life right now. Pray for those that are specifically just struggling, maybe in health or relationship or financially or, or many or all of those ways. Lord, I pray, Holy Spirit, right now that you would encounter them at the depths of their soul and lead them to the path of life and trust in you. Lord, we echo what the, the father in, in the gospel who asked you to heal his son and you asked him, does he believe? And he fell to his knees and he said, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Lord, we echo that for all of us. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Grow our faith today that we might look more like you, that we might enjoy you more, that we might be more people of love and mercy in our world. Lord, we need your grace. We don't deserve it. We're not worthy, but say the word and you will do that in our lives, Lord. So we just bring this thing to you right now and ask you to begin to work in us in that. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.